Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're staying healthy and I hope you're staying happy. Now, if you've been listening to this podcast, you know the drill. I choose three movies that you may or may not have seen. We talk to an actor or a director and you can go check them out and it will help fill some of the minutes and hours of self-isolation that we all have to burn off. We've got three movies today based on real people and real events because right now the world's about as real as it's ever been. So I thought this might work out well for us. First up, The Big Short. And this is an infuriating movie, not because it's poorly made, but because it's so well made. It takes years of banking baffle gab and distills it down into the essence of what may be the funniest, smartest, and most maddening look at why America's housing market crashed in 2008. The film opens with a famous Mark Twain quote, it ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. The quote is a bit of a Mobius strip, but so is the story the Big Short is trying to tell. Based on Michael Lewis's nonfiction bestseller of the same name, the film presents a cavalcade of facts and information formed into a story about how four investment bankers played by Christian Bale, Steve Carell, Finn Whitrock, and Joe Magaro saw the financial meltdown coming when no one else did. Taking on the arrogance of Wall Street's old boy network, they bet against the American economy and in the process expose an unprecedented level of financial criminality. The movie explains that Wall Street likes to use confusing terms to make you think that only they can understand what they do. It's like 2 plus 2 equals fish, says one banker, expressing disbelief at the financial manipulations used by the banks. To make the financial mumbo-jumbo sexy, McKay uses a variety of tricks, including cutting to Margot Robbie in a bubble bath, explaining subprime loans in plain language. It's a spoonful of sugar to help the expositional medicine go down. The Big Short doesn't shy away from tackling complex financial transactions, but it never feels dry or forced. McKay is a showman and layers the film with fourth wall breaking celebrity cameos and concise social commentary woven into the drama. I asked him about creating those moments in the film while still being able to keep the story moving forward. Here's what he had to say. Uh, that would be the part of the movie that I think some uh, people would say, why did you do that? Uh, for us, we felt like it was really important. We wanted to be the first Wall Street movie that really took you behind the curtain, that really says, okay, all these confusing terms you hear, all these ways that the banks make you feel stupid or bored, it's actually not that hard. And if the guy who did Step Brothers can understand it, I think you can understand it too. So that was the bold leap we took. It would have been very easy to just do this character story, to just show these guys being affected by it. But I really wanted this thing to bridge a gap. I think there's too much stuff in our society where people just think, ah, banking, it's boring, I don't get it. Or politics, who cares? And especially in the States, we get a lot of that. And the truth is, this stuff is exciting. I mean, this stuff is the language of power. And once you hook on it, it's like, it gets addictive. Like I started reading all kinds of books and interviewing different people. And, and you start realizing that economics and finance, they, it is politics, that there's really no difference between them. And your favorite sports team is affected by politics. Your kids going to college, your house, your dental bills. I mean, it's everything. The Big Short is a lighthearted look at a dire situation. 
call it a dramedy. Director Adam McKay is best known for making movies like Anchorman 2, The Legend Continues, The Other Guys, Step Brothers, so he knows how to milk a laugh out of a scene. He also knows that the level of understanding the viewer needs to get while the housing bubble bursts is above the level of most MBAs. I told McKay that while some might have seen him as an odd choice to direct a film about the financial crash, I thought his comedies, like Anchorman, which is a satire of TV news, and Step Brothers, which is about consumerism, had deeper meanings than people might have originally thought. So I asked, is The Big Short just a more straightforward movie than he had done in the past? I think so. You know, I think with all of our comedies, you're correct. We always have a little bit of a point of view in there that we're kind of playing with, as silly and as absurdist as the movies are. And when I read this book, I, I just kind of did everything I wanted to see in a movie. I mean, it was funny. It was tragic. The characters were amazing. It was incredibly relevant. Um... Yeah, I just never read a book like it. So the, these were all interests I had on the outside. Some of them would show up in our comedies, but I just never read a book this entertaining, yet this informative, yet this tragic. Um, so I think it was a case of just I ran into one of like the great books of the last 20 years that kind of shows what's going on in our modern world. The Big Short features strong performances, Christian Bale stretches in ways we haven't seen from him before, but it's the film's unflinching depiction of unbridled greed that will resonate. Next up, Donald Trumbo was an Academy Award-nominated screenwriter when his political beliefs saw him drummed out of Hollywood's inner circles, reducing him to penning scripts for B-movies like The Alien and The Farm Girl. For a brief time, he was the highest paid writer in Hollywood, which also meant that he was the highest paid writer in the world. He was a family man, a wealthy man, and a proud American communist whose career was sidelined by Hollywood conservatives like Hedda Hopper, John Wayne, and the Motion Picture Alliance for the Preservation of American Ideals. I love our country, he says in the film Trumbo, and our government is good, but couldn't anything good be better? The film Trumbo, starring Brian Cranston, begins as the writer is enjoying the success of his scripts for 30 Seconds Over Tokyo, Our Vines Have Tender Grapes, and Kitty Foyle. He's a committed communist who, along with a group of Tinseltown activists like Edward G. Robinson and Arlen Hurd, work tirelessly to create unions within the studio system to ensure that everyone, from the grips to the set decorators on up, earn a living wage. Their socialist leanings didn't go unnoticed by Congress, and a cadre of concerned actors who think that the group's socialist ways are un-American. When Hopper, using extortion and bigotry, coerces studio head Louis B. Mayer to fire Trumbo, an industry-wide blacklist bans the writer and nine others from working in Hollywood. With all legal avenues exhausted, Trumbo sees his professional and personal worlds crumble as former friends like Edward G. Robinson stand before Congress and call him a sinister force. Punished for his political beliefs, Trumbo makes ends meet by writing screenplays under aliases and creating a script factory staffed by blacklisted actors. After a decade of working in the shadows and winning two Oscars under fake names, he finds two powerful people willing to break the blacklist and put his name back where it belongs, on screen. 
Trumbo is not the story of Senator Joe McCarthy's communist witch hunt or a rehash of the congressional hearings. Instead, it is the tale of the times and the personal story of one man who would not allow his civil liberties to be stripped away. I asked Brian Cranston if the idea that you were suddenly told that the thing you do, the thing you love, that pays for your life, well, that you couldn't do it anymore. I asked him if he wondered how he would react in a similar situation. I think it's the something that you would normally hear this conversation over the dinner table with friends, this hypothetical situation. What would you do if they subpoenaed you and they said, we want to know who else likes baseball? Who is it? You know, and whatever the case, you know, would you point the fingers at the other people who found joy enjoyment out of something, you know, or whatever the case is? In this case, politics. Who, who else has theoretical opinions similar to yours or exactly like yours in the American Communist Party? Uh, and of course, I would love to think that I would be honorable and, and not do it. But I have to be honest and say, that's the hypothetical. I think I would be uh, resistant to that pressure and perhaps even pay the price to it. But do I know for sure? No, I don't think I do know f for certainty because I'm not faced with it. Maybe it's more difficult now that you have found a huge amount of success and you're working at a much higher level. Maybe years ago, I read the recent Hollywood Reporter interview with you uh, where you had some lean times. Maybe then it might have been a little easier to go, you know what, I can leave that behind. Maybe now a little harder? Oh, certainly. You know, if you're, if you're set for life financially, your decisions are probably easier to make. It's like, I, I, I will tell you no, yeah. you know. Uh, but... Um, if you are just beginning, yeah, I mean, all conditions are, are different. Like, I, I don't want to now take a job for money. I take jobs because I'm attracted to them by the creative element to it or that it challenges me in some way. Um, and my agents are incentivized to work out the best deal they can. And, and I don't want to, to portray this idea that oh no, I'm just about the art, uh, I've been poor, and I've been rich, and rich is better. Uh, so, you know, um, my wife and I have never had an argument over money, at all. In, in lean times and in good? Never. We've never had a, an argument over money, and we've been together almost 30 years now, so that, I think that contributes to that. You're finding common ground, and like-minded um, ways to approach your life. Um, but I certainly understand those people who do find themselves in financial straits and how much stress that would put on a relationship. So people taking a job for money, I not only understand, I support it, that I, I wish I can give you the job and I employ several people, but I wish I can give more people jobs, you know. In a way, I relate to Trumbo in that sense, because he's not really a communist. He's a member of the American Communist Party, of which he quit, and then joined again, and then quit again. Because he probably found, and there's evidence to this, it's the same amount of BS 
and posturing in that party as there are in any other political party. And I think he got tired of it. And what he was trying to find is probably a, 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 the perfect situation. And the truth is he wasn't a communist at all. He was a socialist. Mm -hmm. He loved being wealthy. He loved having wealthy things. He was a gadget guy. He got the very newest typewriter that came out. Anything and everything that came out, I need to have that. I want that. I want that car. Let's get that. And he spent money like, like there was no end to it. And consequently, he found himself in, in dire straits several times. Perhaps it's appropriate that a film about the golden age of Hollywood, even one that tarnishes the glamour of the period, should feel a little old-fashioned. It's a redemption story simply told and populated by archetypal characters. John Wayne isn't a person, for instance. He's a blustery caricature of the Duke taken directly from the actor's movie roles. Uh, but they all revolve around Cranston's flamboyant performance. The Breaking Bad star plays Trumbo as a raging ball of ideology quick with a quip and willing to pay the price for his actions. It's a large cigarette chomping performance of a larger-than-life person. I asked Brian Cranston what appealed to him about the Trumbo project. Well, the story itself is brilliant, and that's the first thing I look for, is the story and the script that supports the story, whether that's on stage or film, it doesn't matter. Um, and in this sense, it's really very simple. It's, it's battling for freedoms, expressive freedoms uh, that, that Americans have, have fought for and had been persecuted for in their home countries, and it's not going to happen here, is the, is the, the pledge that under the First Amendment you have the right to free speech. And Trumbo felt very strongly in that. He was a very big supporter and, and, and defender of the Bill of Rights and the Constitution and the government. Uh, but he, and he felt that it was un-American and unconstitutional for the House Un-American Activities Committee to hold these hearings and demand under threat of, of uh, contempt of Congress uh, that they answer these questions. So they had no right to even ask, ask the questions of, are you a member of a, of a union? Because you're trying to put me in a position, and if I am, are you or now, or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? Uh, and if, if so, to only save yourself, renounce it now. That you were wrong, and yet you will never do it again, and, you, you know, and tell us who else was a member. Give us names so that we can go after them. And it's, it's fundamentally wrong. And he felt that, that was, it was wrong and unconstitutional to be able to ask that question, just like it would be unconstitutional, to demand, under the penalty of contempt of Congress, who you voted for. Tell me what your religion is. Where do you practice? Who else is in your church? Who are the names of the people who voted for this candidate? I mean, it's, it's none of your business. Those are the freedoms. Those are the exact freedoms that were presented to the American people upon the, the, the Constitution. And they were, they were obliterating it. And so the relevancy to today's world is now in, in the ability by the government to just blatantly phone tap anyone they wish. No, there are checks and balances in place for just this reason. 
get those checks and balances. Make sure that you're being um, confirmed and double-checked and make sure that we're, we're not impinging unnecessarily on people's freedoms. Do we have to be careful? We were attacked, yes. Absolutely we have, we have to. But the, we, what we are saying, what I am saying, is that the dialogue needs to be present, that the argument needs to be raised. It's not just, this is what we're doing, sit down and shut up or I'll send you to jail, which is what the situation was in Trumbo's case. Trumbo is a film with a social conscience with important messages about civil liberties and the importance of freedom of belief wrapped up in an old-fashioned biopic. Finally, we have a look at Born to be Blue. Trumpet player Chet Baker is no stranger to the big screen. He was the subject of Let's Get Lost, a 1988 documentary by Bruce Weber. He acted in movies with exciting names like Howlers of the Dock and Hell's Horizon, and his sublime playing haunts the soundtracks of everything from The Sixth Sense to the talented Mr. Ripley. He's back on screen as the subject of Born to be Blue, a stylish drama starring Ethan Hawke. Writer-director Robert Boudreau begins the story during a valley in Baker's life. Consumed by heroin, a beating by a drug dealer leaves him broken and barely able to play. To recuperate, he and soulmate Jane, played by Carmen Ijogo, head to Baker's childhood Oklahoma home, where his antagonistic father, played by Stephen McCaddy, sheds some light on why the musician behaves the way he does. Later, on the comeback trail, Chet and Jane live in a van in Los Angeles as the trumpeter tries to convince his old producer, uh, played by Callum Keith Rennie, to work together again. As he regains his chops and confidence, the question remains, will he be able to embrace the change or will he fall back into his old habits? It's a matter of historical record how Baker's life ended, but Born to be Blue isn't particularly interested in the facts. Jane is a composite figure of several of Baker's girlfriends and wives, and some of the events portrayed as fact are in debate. Instead, the movie is more interested in giving the viewer a feel for Baker's life and struggle. Early on in Baker's career, Miles Davis told him, you haven't lived enough to be a great musician. So I asked Ethan Hawke if great art can be created without life experience. This is what he had to say. Well, my take is that there are no rules, but that um, you don't become Nelson Mandela without suffering. Do you know that, that any individual that achieves great wisdom, um, if you're... If your goal is, is art that's in service of a purpose, like Mozart can do that, and, and you know, uh, and you can say that that's inspiration and stuff. But but there's a lot, a huge myth around Mozart. You know, is that he was just kind of divinely inspired mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And and in truth, he worked really hard. Yeah. He was obsessed with music from a very young age. And young people can be very bright, and and um, and they also can suffer immensely and have something to say. So. And you can make a case to be made that Michael Jackson suffered immensely, yeah. you know, and that's part of what drove him. Um, uh, and so I, I think the service of the artistic community is to translate our lives back to us and hopefully to, to lend some understanding and that you need to participate in life and feel life to be able to do that. Right. And so... Um, but... 
<laughs> you know, lots of people suffer and are without a gift and a talent. It, it doesn't translate into a beautiful painting. You know? Yeah, exactly. You know yeah, what yeah, I mean? Yeah, I mean yeah. You know, I got it. But so, do, you, do you think in your life that as you've gotten you know, a, a little bit older, that, that your work has changed, that your ideas about how you work have changed? I think that there's a certain ethos that I believe in that has been absolutely consistent. Yeah. I, I just, one of the weird things about the movies I've done with Linkletter, whether it's the Before Trilogy or Boyhood, is they make everybody talk about time. Yeah. And you're like, you're like, you know what, I'm the same guy in Before Midnight that I was in Before Sunrise, yeah. you know? Or people say, how do you commit to a movie for 12 years? I'm like, because I love this kind of thing. There's no scenario in which I don't get hit by a car that I won't still love this movie. Yeah, yeah. Like, there's just, that I'm not going to change that much. What experience teaches you is how to better articulate what you're trying to articulate. You gain humility, hopefully, mm -hmm. life. Generally, if you pay attention... Life humbles everybody. Um, some people are so out to lunch that they just, they, they, their own eccentricities and just get fed and they just, you know, whatever. And they, then they, they get worse. Ethan Hawke shares Baker's rough-hewn good looks and does a credible job of imitating the fragile beauty of his singing voice. More importantly, he apes the addict's temperament, charming one minute, petulant and incoherent the next. He is a talented train wreck, a man whose tragic life experience fed his art. Unsure which of his proclivities are his angels and which are his devils, he's a conflicted guy who tries to do well by those around him, but often fails. It's a compelling, if not uncommon, music bio story and Hawk embodies it. Also compelling is Jogo as Jane in what could have been simply a supportive wife role. She has great chemistry with Hawk and sparks fly in her character's relationship with Baker. The heart of the film is their connection, and sometimes the fireworks that fly between them are exciting and sometimes heartbreaking. Born to be Blue suffers from occasional melodrama, but nails the sense of melancholy that characterized Baker's best work. Well, that's it for this week. I hope you find something there to help you pass the minutes and hours of self-isolation. Until we talk again, I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy and stay healthy.